I'm, I'm never going to get it right. You know, I think anyone who's immediately thrust into a position and I'm not saying immediately, I mean, it's been three years, but anyone who's put in a position where they have an incredible megaphone, like imagine your issue, whatever it happens to be on the cover of time magazine, that's a massive, massive platform and a megaphone. You're, you're, you've got to just try to be as careful as possible and do your work and research as, as well as you can. And then realize you're never going to please everyone. Realize you're never going to get it perfectly right. And then be able to take off that responsibility at the end of the night so that you can sleep at night. Because otherwise, I would, I would never make a new image, right? I would be so scared or need to do so much work on each image, right? That I would never actually produce anything. Johnny Miller is a photographer and an activist. He is based in South Africa and is definitely best known for his drone photo series, Unequaled Scenes. These images are striking and almost violent. Shanty towns abutting stately suburban homes, a slum wedged in besides a gleaming financial district. If you have seen them, you'll definitely remember them. It's an almost perfect visual shorthand for drastic inequality. We talk a lot about what he wanted to achieve with this project in terms of shifting the narrative, both in his adopted home of South Africa and further afield. Along with this, the personal costs and uncertainties and doubts and difficulties that come with provoking debate. As an activist who is trying to make a point that is perhaps straightforward, but is also exceptionally politically difficult. Of course, we do also get into the process, into what it takes to produce a concept and individual images like this. Please enjoy this one. Johnny has a very introspective and uh, reflective take on things, probably as a consequence of being thrust into uh, debates and and backlash in many cases uh, so quickly over the last few years as a result of the 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 profile and the the reach of these images. Firstly, thanks for doing this again. And by by way of introduction, I do usually start these in the same place. If you meet someone socially not a specialist you know at um, a pub or a wedding uh, how do you describe what you do for a living well i usually say i'm a photographer and i'm finding that problematic for a couple reasons one is that i think many people's ideas of a photographer revert to what they've been associated with which <laughs> seems to be a combination of if they run events some <laughs> sort of event photographer if they've been married a wedding photographer or their own photography so and so um i've played around with introducing myself differently but sometimes just for brevity's sake or because i'm tired it's just <laughs> a photographer if i have the time to explain it i generally uh introduce myself as a creative or a creative storyteller. And by that, I mean looking at issues that I'm interested in the world, but presenting them. So rearranging their constituent parts and synthesizing what they mean to audiences in a creative way. So a pleasing way. 
as, as you can imagine in a pub sometimes when it's loud, that doesn't go over very well. So generally photographer comes out. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. I, I guess I'm assuming a setting with uh, yes, less exactly. background noise and uh, higher <laughs> attention spans. And what, what have been the main uh, sort of story beats in that so far? What have been the big projects that you, you, would, you would mention by way of example? Well, Unequal Scenes is the biggest project that I have right now, which is a photo project. It started off as a photo project, I should say, but it's grown into sort of a, a platform for people to get information about what inequality looks like. The project is a uh, primarily a drone photography project. So taking a drone and looking at the world's most unequal scenes. I've done it in six countries at this point, hoping to go to more before the project ends. Um, it could be an ongoing project for the rest of my life, um, honestly, because it's got so much... Uh, steam behind it and by that i mean it's literally the photos have been used hundreds potentially thousands of times and had impressions of tens of millions of people including the cover of time magazine and national geographic and a variety of documentary films and speeches and stuff like that it's completely sort of taken over my life the last three years and it is kind of funny because it all started with a viral facebook post it didn't have a campaign behind it when it began. I don't have uh, investors or money behind the project, so it's um, self-funded, self-run. And um, I've gotten a few different fellowships on the back of it, which have allowed me to delve more deeply into becoming an expert in inequality as well. So now I'm um, kind of changing my focus away from, as I said before, being a photographer and pushing people to a photography gallery and uh, trying to become more of either a thought leader or some sort of inspiring person in the space to get people to pay attention to inequality issues. And inequality to me is, is kind of an interesting topic, right? I was at the UN General Assembly this year, and the SDGs were very prominently featured. Um, the main narratives around the SDGs that were crunchy and easy to understand or things like climate, right? Or things like ending poverty or clean water, like really like easy to understand and solutions that are quite apparent um, messaging. So the storytellers around climate are very effective. And I realized that what I do is often misinterpreted. And by what I do, I mean focusing attention on extreme inequality issues, economic inequality specifically, people always change in their minds to what I'm saying is ending poverty. And they're related, but they're not the same thing. And so I feel like as I move forward in the next few years, that that's going to be more and more important, is helping businesses, helping activists, helping organizations and citizens sort of understand what the narrative is, in my opinion, that's important to um, take away, which is the fact that the way profits are distributed and the way that labor is exploited and the way that we consume and the way that we um, tax and all these complicated sort of not sexy issues that have to deal with inequality are actually at the core of the issue. Um, I feel like there's actually potentially a bigger need to be a creative in the inequality space than there is in the climate space right now. And that's not to say that I feel like inequality is a bigger issue, but I feel like there's more of a need to create narratives that help people understand what I mean when I'm talking about reducing inequalities. Mm. To give that a bit more texture, given that this is a... <laughs> 
audio medium, sadly, talking about a largely visual storytelling that you're doing. Um, when you started taking these aerial shots for unequal scenes, was there a point at which you looked at a aerial photo and, and or a representation of a urban landscape and thought, that is an image that tells a story. You know, that is something that communicates powerfully what I'm trying to say here. Was there a moment where that clicked or, or which at which point in the project did you decide that you really had something there? Yeah, well, let me tell you a, a brief story about how the light bulb went off over my head. And if you've never been to Cape Town, um, there's a big mountain right in the middle of town. It's called Table Mountain. And it's got three peaks. There's Devil's Peak, Table Mountain itself, and then Lion's Head. And everyone knows exactly what those three peaks look like, right? There's even bumper stickers that have the three peaks on them. So it's like a very cliched view of Cape Town. Um, quite beautiful, <laughs> not cliched in a bad way. And uh, I bought a drone in 2016. And at the time, I was a, a photographer and I was focused on corporate tourism, sort of beauty photography. I was trying to create something that would help my business out, honestly. I wasn't necessarily an activist or super interested in um, inequality issues per se, although I had gone to Cape Town originally to study anthropology at University of Cape Town, and we looked at city issues as yeah, you have to, and Cape Town's a very divided city, so I was aware of these issues, but I wasn't focused on them. And I was hiking on Table Mountain with my friends, and I took the drone. This is almost the first video I shot. I think it was the first or second video I shot. And I flew the drone over us as we were hiking on the mountain, and I put it onto YouTube, and uh, my friend saw it. And my friend grew up in Cape Town, and he turned to me and he goes, wow, Johnny, I've never seen Table Mountain look this way before. And it was this light bulb moment in my head that the drone footage had helped him see Table Mountain in a new way. It completely changed his perspective on this thing. This cliched view of Table Mountain with the three peaks was now different for him. And yeah, if you say that's the moment the light switch switched, it was because the drone from that point on wasn't just a camera to me. It was um, it was a tool. It was an agent. And this is going to sound very grandiose, so bear with me. It's an agent of democracy in a way. So it's a democratic enabling tool. And by that, I mean, imagine what it was like, what it cost and what the regulations were to put a camera into the sky before the advent of these consumer drones. It was impossible to do. You had to either hire an airplane, a helicopter, or you had to be a government, right? You had to be really rich or you had to be really powerful to be able to throw a camera into the sky and see what's going on in your own city. And over the last 10 years, this technology has gone down to cost now four or $500. Everyone can afford this. And to change radically people's perspectives on their own cities. And I, I wanted to experiment. You know, I had, I had this idea that there was power in this technology and that the city was horribly divided. I felt like I was feeling myself quite habituated to going about my daily life in Cape Town. I had lived there up, up to that point for about five years, driving past shacks, driving past extreme destitute sort of living conditions right next to gated communities with swimming pools. And I wanted to put it into one frame because I hadn't, hadn't seen that before. I mean, I think Unequal Scenes is a powerful photo series, but the actual trope of putting rich versus poor together into one image is not very creative. It's very simple. 
And I'm honestly, I was kind of shocked that no one had really done it before. There's that famous photo in Brazil. Someone had done it in 2004. This guy took a Vieira um, in Sao Paulo, but no one had really done it in Cape Town. So I drove with my drone one Saturday afternoon. I had my surfboard on the top of the car because I was going surfing. And I, I knew there was one location in Cape Town that I drove past to go surfing that had this sort of dynamic to it. I, I went to this kind of uh, cul-de-sac and took the drone out, put it in the sky. Um, and because everyone ha has security concerns in Cape Town, there's like high fences, right? So you can't even really see when you put the drone on the ground what's on the other side of the wall. And, uh, you know, I was looking at my, my phone which is how I flew the drone or how you do fly the drone. And I was seeing what was appearing once the drone went into the sky. And it became very quickly evident that this was going to be a really powerful photo. Like as the scene unfolded in front of me on my phone and I got to the point right above, well, kind of like dead center between Masapumalele and Lake Michelle, which were the two communities in that first image. Um, and I framed it up. I just knew, wow, I'm, you know, I've never... I've kind of never seen this before. Like this is going to be powerful, but you know, as <laughs> I take a lot of images, I think are good. Um, but that doesn't translate into success or views or power or whatever from the final image. Right. There's, there's other factors involved in that. So I wasn't expecting much. So I, I went home, I took that photo and put it onto my Facebook page, which had 200 people that liked it or something like that. And I went to bed and when I woke up in the morning, it had gone viral. So that, that photo had uh, thousands of likes and hundreds of shares and comments and new ones were popping up all the time. And there was this uh, fear, actually, that occurred to me that I had inadvertently put my foot right in the middle of something extremely scary, which is the confluence in South Africa of race, land, and politics, and, and people were directly sort of calling me out, you know, saying, what, what are you doing making the country look bad? Or what, what are you saying? You're saying that all the rich people should give up their land for the poor people? Or, you know, what, what are you, are you some sort of double agent working for the, um, you know, the ANC government? Or, you know, so people didn't really know who I was either. They didn't know I was American at first. They didn't know if I was South African. They didn't, you know, they didn't know if I was black. They didn't know if I was white. Because of the fact that I think the initial text that I put on the photo was so ambiguous, or not ambiguous, but kind of like objective in a way, kind of like Wikipedia style. The conversations that played out were allowed to sort of play out with each other. Like the, the pros and the cons of the commenters were able to connect instead of rallying around the idea that the photographer, the subjective photographer, was the person creating the photos. Does that make sense? It's almost like I took a snapshot of a map and put it onto a forum and people were debating the issues and each other rather than the photographer's intention. And I think that that's an important point because so many photos of inequality before unequal scenes and before 2016 in Cape Town were photos of poverty. And when you look at photos of poverty in Cape Town, there's a particular color of the skin. There's a particular, um, typology of the background and the colors and, and the look that you inevitably associate with the photographer's subjectivity. You can't not, right? Like the photographer entering a township and taking photo of a boy or a girl playing in like dirt or something like that is kind of a well overused trope to solicit some sort of empathy. And 
And I think it was kind of the perfect storm of the new drone technology and the issues in the country at the time and the aesthetic allowed people some distance from that. Distance from the poverty and the people in the photos to talk about what the issues were representing writ large. And because I very quickly took more photos and put them into the series, it became less about Cape Town and less about Masapumalele and more about the South African experience as far as rich and poor. And I think, I think people were really thirsty for that, honestly. Um, journalists picked up the story very quickly. Uh, the South African government picked up the story very quickly. In fact, almost immediately, the Nelson Mandela Foundation and one of the deputy ministers in the cabinet in um, Zuma's cabinet at the time reached out to me and said, you know, we want to support your work. We want to exhibit your work. Uh, that deputy minister spoke at my exhibition, very first one in Johannesburg in uh, June 2016. So I took the first photos in April and by June, the deputy minister is speaking about them. It's a complicated project in some senses because it's not so simple to say that I took a photo and it went, and it went viral, right? It's like there's a lot of factors that went into it. I think if you did the, that photo today, it wouldn't have the same power. And I think if you had tried to do it 10 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to with the technology. So there was kind of like this perfect sliver of time that I had this sort of accidental epiphany to try it out. And it worked. Just a quick note on that. Uh, there, was, there was a guy from the Nelson Mandela Foundation and very early, the uh, Nelson Mandela Foundation wanted to use the images to um, help promote their mission. And I spoke at an event with um, one of the Nelson Mandela Foundation employees in attendance. And when I was speaking to the crowd, I said, and, you know, this is in relation to that idea that um, it was kind of an objective text that I put along with the photos. So I said, you know what, everyone, this is my objective view on inequality in South Africa. I said something like that. Like, this is, a, this is an objective look on inequality. And afterwards, he came up to me and he said, Johnny, you've got to stop saying that this is an objective view of inequality. He said, it's much more powerful as a message for you to say this is your subjective, artistic understanding of inequality. And it's also more true, right? Like, you are framing that part of the world with your 16 by nine aspect ratio and putting your drone immediately above that point, you're not, um, you're not covering the whole community. You're taking a small section of it in that photo. And this is your artistic vision. This is your subjective view. And honestly, if you're an activist and he said directly to me, like you should be an activist, you should not aspire to be a photographer who's just taking objective photos. You should aspire to be someone with a voice and a vision who wants to change the world. Then the way to best do that and to get people to rally around your project is to say that it's your vision, that it's not just an objective view from a map. And I think he was right. You know, I think um, if you consider yourself an art activist or you consider yourself an activist or even a storyteller, you have to own the idea that your subjectivity is part of the special sauce that's making the project special. So what does that visioning process look like at the level of an individual community or, or part of the country? What are you looking for, you know, almost at the level of, of selecting and compositing, um, or composing, I should say, not compositing, these, um, these images? What sort of features of the landscape uh, jump out at you as as potentially 
interesting and powerful and, and telling a story? Well, when I'm researching uh, unequal scenes images, it's, it's a pretty clear dynamic, I think, if you look at the images. The aesthetic is a lot of poor shacks or slummy type areas. So literally a high number of dwellings next to a relatively lower number of dwellings that represent the rich side of the tracks. So if you look at any of the photos looking straight down on my website, you'll see that aesthetic pop up. It's also kind of an interesting story of how we process images. Because when I first took the photo in Cape Town, the very first photo, it was just kind of, that was what it looked like on the ground, right? Um, And when the camera of the drone itself looks straight down at that, it produces a like a confrontational quality in the viewer that I didn't realize the power of at the time consciously, but subconsciously I did. So orienting the camera towards the horizon as you're flying at a scene gives you a certain look, a look that you might be familiar with from flying in an airplane or uh, a helicopter chasing the Tour de France or something like that. They almost always shoot towards the horizon so you can see where the people are going two in the scene. It provides context, context of your surroundings. But when you orient the camera straight down, it removes that context, it removes that nuance, and you focus, you almost zero in on this two sides, very confrontational, almost looks like two sides of a battle, right? About to smash into one another. It's, to me, a very violent image. I think, you know, by accident, in a way, I stumbled upon that from that particular scene. But as I've gone forward with the project, I've refined to almost only put out images that have that violence inherent in them. Because the way that photos spread is through small screens generally on social media. And if you don't have punchy, impactful, and I don't want to use word violent, over overuse it, but it's kind of violent images, there's a higher chance that your images will be scrolled right past. And so there's a a stickiness to the unequal scenes images that have that sort of violent quality that I realized very quickly. And actually, someone influential in the photo world also pointed out to me very quickly that my images were very good at that. And so not only am I researching the images on Google Earth before I go to a place that will have that sort of quality, but then when I curate the images after I take them, right? So when I'm in Lightroom or Photoshop and I'm editing the images and I'm selecting the ones that will go on to become the cover images on my website, um, I have that aesthetic quality in front of my mind. It's not in the back of my mind anymore. It's a conscious choice to to set up that dynamic. So the research process is is... It's not that complicated, to tell you the truth. There's clear tools that you can search for um, inequality measures of many countries, including World Bank Gini coefficients, uh, census data. A lot of countries will have publicly available census data. A lot of countries will have some form of a map which shows you where concentrations of wealth are. And I spend time going through a variety of sources to figure out on a map because obviously my project is very visual and I need to travel places, where those concentrations bump up against where poverty is. And oftentimes the separation is either a geographical formation, like a river or 
I don't know, a valley or something like that. Or more compellingly, it's some sort of human-created barrier, like in South Africa, the apartheid government separated racial groups with buffer zones. And buffer zones may have been empty land, or they may have been railroads, or they may have been power lines, or they may have been natural formations. And so in South Africa and places like maybe uh, India, it's very easy to see those distinctions in places like Mexico, or definitely, like, for example, America, it's much more difficult to find those distinctions. Even though America is the world's most unequal rich country, at least as far as the OECD, although the UK is also very unequal, um, it's much more difficult to see from the air what that looks like. You have to be a bit more creative and you have to be a bit more abstract in your image-making process. And so I've noticed... And, and I'm trying to tie this all together with the way that audiences uh, acquire my images, because it's really important. If you're interested in, in being not only an activist, but a storyteller and an artist, you need audiences. Otherwise, you're speaking to empty rooms. There's no room to change anyone's mind on anything if the people aren't in the room in the first place. So I feel like the areas that I've done the work that have had the strongest, most violent images have actually served the project even in the areas that don't have those sorts of images inherent in them. So I push them higher in my website and I push them higher in my social media. And for example, America, um, because I have such a strong affinity to the country being born there and the, I just find it very strange how the social let's say, conversations about how resources are distributed uh, exist in America versus other countries with similar sort of ethnic makeups and histories um, in Europe, for example. And I feel like I have a lot of work to do that's very important in America. The images there don't resonate as well. It's very easy to see with a project like mine because you can measure it in likes and clicks and reshares, right? And also exhibitions, the images that they choose to share. Right, so curators, what are they? What are they looking for? So it's very easy to know that the images in Detroit, or Seattle, or Los Angeles, or Baltimore, are never going to be as striking and as popular, if I can say that in quotes, as images from South Africa or India. So then it's a question of how do I, as an artist, create an American component to this project, or do I not? Is it not? Does it not fit in? So right now there's a USA um, button on my website, but um, it, it, people rarely respond to those images. <laughs> it's very underclicked. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I, it's kind of weird. It's like people, they, they want to see, like, they want to be shocked. So it's, it's not always as an activist or as a campaigner about the literal interpretation of the images, but it's about creating an idea, a feeling, emotion, a campaign that allows people in to the issue to then discuss further whatever the nuance is. And that's not always my job. I sometimes get asked, what are you doing to end inequality personally? And I always, I, I very quickly in my career with Unequal Scenes specifically, decided to take that weight off my shoulders and be like, uh, you know, guys, um, I'm actually not going to fret too much about the fact that this worldwide <laughs> problem that's been going on for potentially since the beginning of time, which is 
extreme economic inequality is going to be solved by me, this photographer in Cape Town, right? However, that doesn't mean that I'm absolving myself of all personal responsibility. I'm definitely not in this photo uh, series is hopefully, and everyone can see this, drenched in ethics and reflexivity and um, study and research, which I feel makes it an important series and not a fly-by-night sort of poverty porn photo carousel. And to be perfectly honest, you know, self-reflecting about my own privilege and my own positionality as the photographer who's a white guy from America living in South Africa is yet another factor in this whole process that's, um, you know, I'm, I admit freely and I feel is important as a photographer who's dealing with social issues to interrogate. And that's not to say that other photographers don't do that. But I'm just saying, for me, it was always very important as well to um, be very transparent about what I was trying to do and my messaging. Um, but the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's going to take a spectrum of actors to move the needle on any topic, let alone one as complicated as reducing inequalities. And so if my images can provide an in, an insertion point for people to have discussions, to communicate what they're talking about, and to give some sort of life to these graphs and data about Gini coefficients and tax uh, burdens and stuff like that, then that's amazing. Then, um, you know, I've done more than I've ever done before. Mm. And I'll come back to, to that point, um, I think, in a minute. But just to stick to the, the images themselves for a second, you refer to certain geographic or, or features of the urban landscape as, as scars, as um, sort of residue of, of policy or planning decisions that have separated areas, uh, usually deliberately. So in some cases, literal concrete boundaries that separate neighborhoods. Uh, one of the things that was interesting in, in the... Detroit series was a historical concrete wall to to separate areas and that kind of residue of of historical decisions that have been taken, not things that have grown up organically. How much of this is is uh, a product of things evolving in the way they evolve, and how much are you looking for deliberate decisions that have been taken in terms of planning or infrastructure or demarcation of different areas that's a good question and what i would say to you is that there's a distinction between photojournalism and art and my series seems to be right on the dividing line between the two and oftentimes people are i wouldn't say confused but sometimes they'll attribute certain aspects of the project to one side or the other um, without sort of consulting me as far as what my original vision was. I'll give you an example of the Time Magazine cover. So I was fortunate enough on May 13th to be on the cover of Time Magazine, at least the international version of Time Magazine. And the cover was of a area of Johannesburg with Primrose on one side, which is a sort of middle-class community, not all white, it's kind of a mixed-race community, but people definitely live in formal housing. And then on the right, this area called Macaus, which is just uh, an overwhelming number of people, estimates up to 40,000 people live on land that was an old gold mine. 
and there's a four lane road in between them. It's a very striking image. Always one of my favorite images that I ever took. And when I took that image and, and time ran with the image and I don't have total creative control. I have a little bit of creative control over sort of the caption and, um, the credit, but as far as editorial control about what they write about the image, I don't. And so I got a email afterwards from a professor of architecture at Wits University who said, um, I followed your project and specifically this image from Time Magazine very closely, and it's dismayed me to see that people have attributed this particular community as a result of, of apartheid planning issues. And it may even be detrimental because of the fact that that township of Macaus, so this sort of uh, informal area, has been fighting for a long time to actually stay there and not get formal housing because the policy in South Africa is to provide formal housing, if not in situ, then in like quite far away areas outside of the city where um, there's open lands that the city can sort of take the problem away, create some sort of formalized housing, and then they've kind of said that they've done, um, they've upgraded right? So there's uh, this tension between upgrading in situ and uh, moving townships or slums out of the center of the city to sort of clear the terrible inequalities from the air that are visible in my photos. And she said, your image may inadvertently be pushing those people out of there because now it's going to upset people in the Johannesburg city government because Time magazine and the whole world now is focused on inequality in this particular example. Um, it may actually do more harm than good. And for example, the pool in your image is actually a community center. And a lot of the people from Macau's use that pool. And the, um, the big building isn't a mansion. Not that I ever said it was a mansion, by the way, or this pool is associated with it. Um, is actually a community health clinic that was built for that community. So, you know, her point was that... I should have done more research. I should have presented a more balanced and real view of the nuance of the situation, the history, the, you know, maybe gone in and pointed out certain parts of the image that people may have been misled by. So I very patiently kind of like took deep breaths because it's not easy to be criticized. I'm not going to say I have very thick skin. I'm a human being. And so, and she was very polite about everything and very uh, sort of sweet in her criticism. And I responded that the project has always from the beginning been meant to spark conversations and debate and that it was my artistic intention to produce images that represented the divides around the world that economic inequality produces. And some of them are going to be man-made. Some of them, well, they're all man-made, sorry. Some of them are going to be sort of constructed as far as people placed in one area and, and placed in the other, like you saw during apartheid, or some of them were going to be more in quotes, organic. Maybe the Detroit examples are a good example of those of how um, that wall is a planned disenfranchisement piece of infrastructure that the uh, developer in Detroit placed into that area to separate black and white. But maybe some, Im some images from Woodward Avenue, for example, where you see blight on one side and sort of rich houses on the other, developed more or less, I don't like to use the word organically, but maybe from like a less direct intervention into where people could and could not live. And the idea that I want to get across is that 
the image is less important than the conversations we're having about what the images represent. And just like any good piece of artwork, the images do that. The impression that you get that's overwhelming and, like I said earlier, extremely violent of that Johannesburg image with an overwhelming, literally overwhelming, if you look at that photo closely, number of people living in complete and abject poverty right next to people living in houses. I don't want to say that the details don't matter, but the image evokes emotions and it's a feeling that changes people slightly just enough to want to dive deeper into what the image represents. And so I actually see what her criticism was as a great success, which is the fact that that image emotionally struck her and allowed her to delve deeper into what the image represents. And then we formed a conversation. She actually ended up inviting me to a uh, conference on architecture and planning in Johannesburg. And I sat in front of about 40 different planners from the city government, from NGOs and civil society and from academia. And I was able to explain to them what I just explained to you that um, I'm not a photojournalist, even though sometimes I work as a photojournalist and sometimes this series is produced in an editorial fashion that seems similar to photojournalism. And the intention with my work was to, to, to provoke these sorts of conversations. And it was, it's almost like you got to do that in person. It's almost like you got to sit in front of someone and explain yourself and get across your sort of humanity. But I think we all left shaking our heads in agreement <laughs> that we understood each other, that we were all fighting the same battle, that um, even though uh, there was things to learn specifically from my side about what um, city planners were dealing with specifically in Johannesburg, that um, it wasn't uh, an issue of sort of um, trying to circumvent something in order to score a quick win, right? And I think that's always the fear on the side of people who deal with these issues, which are real issues on the ground. I mean, we're dealing... And, and I'm not absolving myself of responsibility because there's 40,000 people that live in the house. And if my photo inspires policymakers in Johannesburg to move that settlement, and I'm not saying that it does or it did or it will, but if it did, hypothetically, then there is responsibility on my part for how I took that photo and what I write about it, for sure. That navigation of the ethics and being careful about how I do this project when it affects people's real life lived experiences is a work of introspection that I do as an artist every time I go out and take these photos. And every time I speak to someone like yourself about how I've taken the photos, I reflect a little bit more on it, which is why, um, which is why I like talking about these photos because I think it makes me not only a better photographer, but, but a better person. And, um, it's, I'm, I'm never going to get it right, you know. I think anyone who's immediately thrust into a position, and I'm not saying immediately, I mean, it's been three years, but anyone who's put in a position where they have a, an incredible megaphone, like imagine your issue, whatever it happens to be, on the cover of Time magazine. That's a massive, massive platform and a megaphone. You're, you're, you've got to just try to be as careful as possible and do your work and research as, as well as you can and then realize you're never going to please everyone. Realize you're never going to get it perfectly right. And then be able to take off that responsibility at the end of the night so that you can sleep at night. Because otherwise, I would, I would never make a new image, right? I would be so scared or need to do so much work on each image 
right? That I would never actually produce anything because it's this combination of so many different factors, not the least of which is how to sort of produce the images in the first place, right? Which involve partnerships, which involve research, which involve time. Um, there's always going to be an issue where you feel like we've, we've done as good as we can do. We've got to produce the image and it's got to go out. Now, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast when we were talking a little bit about other projects that I'm working on, and I just want to segue a little bit into something that I'm doing currently in Jordan. I was just in Jordan with a fellowship that I have called Atlantic, and some of us, there's about six of us who are in a project and we're working with refugee issues, so specifically health issues in refugees that have moved out of Syria and Palestine. And there's a brain health researcher who's part of our team. There's a climate change expert. There's um, a person who organizes festivals in Europe. There's a writer. Um, there's a health uh, researcher from South Africa. And then I'm kind of like the resident photographer, image maker, artist person. I tried to produce portraits and video that I felt were representing Syrian refugees in a slightly different way. and. The images will come out at some point. Uh, we don't have a production partner, and you know we, it's very early in the in the process. But hopefully, when you when you see them, you'll sort of get an idea of what I was trying to accomplish. And then, obviously, the peanut gallery of the world will tell me whether or not I did a good enough job. Um, but uh, it's difficult, right? You're going into a situation where you've done as much research as you possibly can do. You've, you've met the people in an authentic and honest and open way. You've built bonds. You've looked into their eyes. You've explained to them what you want to do. They've agreed to it. Ethically, everything's good. Everything's right. But whether or not you sort of get it perfect and whether or not you get it right or you hit your intention perfectly, is al there's always going to be an ambiguity. And there's always going to be a reassessment of your images. That's the great thing about photography is that it's perfectly reproducible. So my images in 50 years will be the exact same as they are now, right? So people will be able to reassess those images based on the sensibilities of what happens in 50 years' time in South Africa. And, and so even if I were to create a, produce, a perfect image now, it would potentially not be a perfect image in 50 years' time. So there's always going to be that ability mentally that I'm going to have to develop to let some things go <laughs> to kind of like, you know, just breathe a little bit. Uh, I don't want to say take things less seriously because I take things very seriously, but take the expectation of perfection down a notch and um, realize that I'm human just as much as the people that I'm photographing. It's not a, I don't, I don't mean to say that like everything's about me. I'm not trying to say that, but there's a lot of my personality. There's a lot of my uh, self-reflection as an artist that goes into my photography. And, um, you know, it might be taken with a drone. It might look like you took it from Google Maps, but it's not. It was, there's a single person behind the photo series and um, there's part of me in those photos. So um, it's never going to be perfect. I was kind of interested by another project that you did, and this is uh, Slumscapes, which has the aerial component, and it's in many of the same places as Unequal Scenes, but it also has the ground-level view and sort of a 
thicker, more <laughs> anthropological style, let's say, approach of uh, talking to people and, and understanding how they use the space and how it sort of all fits together. And I, I found that quite an interesting contrast, um, both when I was looking at the work online and, and, and to what you were just saying. Was that experience very different for you? How does that fit into the, the picture you just painted? Slumscapes, by the way, was um, an amazing opportunity that I got because of the editor at the time for, for Thompson Reuters Foundation's operation in London. Her name's Paola Totaro. She's an amazing woman, and she saw the vision of unequal scenes as something that she wanted to partner with. And so she approached me and said, we're doing this project called Slumscapes. Um, we're interested in land rights, but we want to incorporate new visual techniques, storytelling techniques, and um, we want you to be the, the driver on that for the world's biggest slums. So there was five areas that they went to. I didn't end up going to Pakistan with them, but I went to Cape Town, uh, Mumbai, Nairobi, and Mexico City. And she uh, also kind of provided me the ability to travel so I could collect more unequal scenes images around the core work, which was taking drone images, doing on the ground video and photography, and then sort of acting a little bit as a researcher for some of the, the writers on the ground there as well. I think they did an incredible job in an incredibly sort of complicated logistical piece to um, pull together not only great stories, um, on the ground of all these people that they interviewed and staying true to the land rights theme, but also creating um, new visuals that even now when I look at um, people's, or I say people's, institutions sort of visual output, very rarely do you have such a combo of drone um, interviews on video, portraits, and 360 video, which we did for that project. The process doing a project like that is going to be slower and more intense than just doing the drums because then obviously you've got to build trust with characters. You've got to go in and you've got to meet them and look them in the eyes, as I said, and hear their stories, record their stories. All the technical production takes much longer, for example, matching the audio with the video and editing the final pieces. Um, I think potentially, and this is not rocket science, right? Every, uh, magazine that deals in uh, social issues with photography and video like National Geographic does it this way is very powerful um, I think the final product there on that on their website which I believe is thisisplace.org slash slumscapes is a, a really well put together mini website as well so it came out really well yeah I guess the I guess the question is more and it, it is a good project and it, it's absolutely worth looking out on its own merits. I guess my question here is, do those kinds of interactions um, directly with the, you know, the users, inhabitants, the people living in these environments, has that led you to evolve the approach? Have those interactions changed the way that you see these spaces? Well, um, undeniably, the more that you understand the individual stories of the people on the ground, the more that it's going to bring, I'd say, a richness to the final output of the story. It definitely provides a richness to add someone's portrait or someone's video recorded history to two sides of the divide, for example, in Hout Bay and Cape Town, adding in portraits of 
Kenny, um, you know, I think added a lot into that uh, particular subset of the project. Um, I bring up Hout Bay because it was very difficult, is very difficult to reach the other side of the divide, which is sort of the people that live in Tierboskloof in Hout Bay, which is the richer side of that photo. And I bring this up not because I'm saying it's too hard, I'm not going to do it, but because the limited amount of sort of time and resources that I have as a photographer and the overall intent and results from creating Unequal Scenes as a project is like a big cost-benefit analysis to me, right? If I spend weeks and months building relationships in a particular area, I may be sacrificing my ability to focus on another part geographically of the world or building another part of a different project that I'm working on at the same time or helping run African Drone, which is my NGO. So, you know, without a, a real patron for unequal scenes, and I say this knowing full well, and I have to give credit for Code for Africa, which is a NGO based in Africa that um, I am a fellow at, and they support me every month with a stipend so that I'm able to focus on unequal scenes, African drone, and a variety of other issues. And that's primarily my main income. But that's a stipend for a basic amount of living expenses. And everything else I do is some form of commission or freelance work that I need to find. So it's I'm not independently wealthy. I don't have unlimited amounts of time and resources. And being able to tell stories in the way that we did with Slumscapes, to some extent, requires those sorts of patrons and benefactors to be able to finance. And that's a, it's a bad answer. I can hear it in your tone. <laughs> you don't like it. It's, it's a bad answer. And I, I wish it wasn't like that. And I could, honestly, it's the thing. I could spend my entire life finding the characters in each of these scenes that I've shot and taking beautiful portraits of them and writing their stories. I could theoretically, um, but I don't. And so there's also a uh, uh, sort of a limitation that I've put onto how much work goes into unequal scenes and where it's best placed that I've made inside my head as far as a, like I said, a cost benefit analysis and right now telling people's personal stories is less a part of that because of resources. That being said, if someone is listening and they want to do a project and they want to, you know, focus, for example, this project in Jordan. Um, Jordan is a very difficult place to bring a drone into. I didn't bring a drone and I didn't fly a drone for sure. Um, but uh, it's kind of irrelevant because it's a different kind of a project, right? And spending the time and building the trust with those Syrian refugees, the 18 at least that I took photos of, um, was in, an incredible experience. And so new projects that I do or am commissioned for don't necessarily involve the same approach as unequal scenes, which, as I said, many times is a drone photo project. It's an art project. It's designed to spark conversations. It's not an exhaustive expose of every individual area and people's stories. So, um, did that sound defensive? I wasn't trying to not, sound it's defensive, a, it's not a but maybe it came across a little bit in my tone. So maybe I need to self-analyze a little bit. <laughs> because obviously, like, I, I want to tell people's stories. I don't want people to email me and say, 
don't you know that Macaos is going through these issues and your photo, you know, is, is, um, potentially, you know, you didn't present all sides to the story and maybe that's even harmful. You know, that doesn't make me feel good, obviously. And I wish Time Magazine would say, Johnny, we want you to do, um, you know, an investigation of Macaus and Primrose. And, and we're going to, you know, provide you the resources to go to Johannesburg and live for a couple weeks with a writer, maybe even. You know, uh, those things don't come around very often. Those opportunities don't come around very often. The journalism around the world is under threat. The business model for journalism is under threat. What I'm doing isn't even journalism. Most most artists survive on commissions, and then they do this in their free time. So do I, right? No one's buying my prints for thousands of dollars. No one is, you know, hanging unequal scenes images in corporate boardrooms and paying me lots of money for that. There is a small residual business that I get out of licensing the images, which provides me a small additional income every month. But it's not enough to to live comfortably, and it's definitely not enough to continue the project without sort of seeking out partnerships in a different way and being creative. And that's, I guess, the life of being an artist. It's different than being a photojournalist, and it's definitely different than being um, than working for a big organization. No, it, do- it doesn't sound defensive and, and far from... I mean, I guess it could be... It could be a criticism, um, and by the sound of it, has been a criticism that you've you've received. But it's also one of the great merits of the approach, right? Is that it is relatively uh, inexpensive. It's relatively accessible. It doesn't require a heavy sort of bureaucratic layer to it, and that is why it sort of makes sense for you to have started. Um, African drone, right, is that this cheap, accessible technology and approach can be applied to other problems relatively easily without huge resources. I mean, that's, as as I understand it, at least, that's that's the whole reason that that makes sense in the first place. Could you explain sort of briefly the kind of, of applications that you see for broadly the the model that you've been using the kind of applications that you see for it um in in activism and for for others who maybe similarly (laughs) are doing this um alongside other jobs or or with limited resources yeah absolutely um well you're spot on basically uh african drone was set up as as a platform and as an accelerator for other people who are interested in using this uh, tool of democracy, the drone, to not only contribute to civil society, and journalism is included in that, but then also dramatically disrupts areas which Africa is lagging behind in, for example, mapping, and for example, delivery, and for example, uh, risk assessment of areas like floodplains. And what African drone is, is it's a network at its core. We've got about uh, 550 members signed up, um, all of them uh, actively interested and working in the drone space in their individual countries. And we've got 34 countries represented, uh, more being added almost weekly. We partner with uh, journalism entities. We partner with the World Bank. We've partnered with um, different civil society members and NGOs. And we've got a big project upcoming in February called the African Drone Forum. 
Um, so African Drone is not directly funding activities that will allow African Drone entrepreneurs to do their job more easily, but it's providing the ecosystem and the network and helping support some uh, activities, some big uh, expos and events. And sometimes we do drone camps. We've done four drone camps. Um, we do a variety of uh, training videos that you can access on our website and we provide information so that people can more easily disrupt these industries that drones can help disrupt. And we um, very uh, excitingly, I think, have been successful and have gotten a great response because of the fact that we're not, A, from the outside, adapting our European or American experience to the African experience. All of the co-founders are based in Africa, um, and there's four of us. Three of them are citizens of an African country. I have my permanent residency in South Africa. And we make it a point to be a nonprofit. So we're an NPO set up in South Africa that empowers Africans to use drones to better their communities and to tell their stories in a way that is less sort of... Um, convoluted and is less interfered with by outside uh, powers. So we want to keep the human capital and to some extent the resources that we develop indigenously and intrinsically in African countries and in African communities within the continent. Oftentimes you'll find that there's tech companies, drone companies, service providers, um, uh, communications companies that will come in and provide expertise for a while. They'll uh, do a good job explaining what they're doing and making everyone feel great. And then when they leave, if their funding dries up, they take that capital with them. They take those resources with them. And to some extent, the systems that they've set up in place fall apart without them there. So what we're also trying to do is strengthen the communities and the sort of civic part of entrepreneurship and innovation to keep it within Africa. Right now, East Africa is uh, a huge hotbed of amazing, innovative drone technology, specifically coming out of Tanzania and Rwanda. Um, that's why we're hosting the African Drone Forum in Rwanda. So uh, Rwanda, as you may know, um, hosts Zipline, which is uh, one of the world's only operating drone delivery services. They deliver blood um, throughout the country in, Zip in, in Rwanda. They've just opened another operation in Ghana. We work closely with the, um, the African Drone Data Academy in Malawi, which is set up by UNICEF. Uh, the World Bank, as I said, is very interested in using drones to disrupt mapping and um, risk mitigation services in East Africa. They've mapped the entire island of Zanzibar and most of Pemba with drones, which is the world's biggest uh, mapping operation that's ever been undertaken using drones. That was a couple years ago that finished. Romani Huria is uh, the counterpart in Dar es Salaam, which they've also done. And all of a sudden, we've got this you know, one to two centimeter resolution map of Dar es Salaam, which otherwise would have taken airplanes to do, which are expensive, or we would have had to rely on like digital globe satellites, which are relatively low resolution. And why is that important is because now we can start to create 3D models and topography of Dar es Salaam, which floods every year and build floodplain models, which show which houses and which structures are built within floodplains. And those people can either be moved or they can be compensated when the floods come. Um, the, I say thread that runs between everything is, is kind of creatively looking at things that may be hidden. I, that's how I like to see it. There, there may be a way of looking at 
things that you always thought you knew what they looked like, but there's sort of an x-ray vision, right, that you can acquire with practice and maybe a little bit of help from a drone or from a photographer or from a writer. That x-ray vision allows you to see what's behind and what's inside some of these problems, whether it's systemic issues of inequality or whether or it's, uh, you know, uh, issues of how delivery systems work in East Africa or whether it's, you know, how people are actually being marginalized because of um, banking practices or transport links that aren't there or whatever it is in East Africa, the African drone is looking to disrupt. There's like an x-ray vision approach that um, I think is really compelling. And when people see it done well, it clicks. So I believe that people are inherently good. People inherently want to help make the world a better place. And this is this comes down to a philosophical debate. Some people don't believe that. Then people need to be cajoled with um, the, the stick of fear and um, oppressive sort of pushing people into particular policy decisions based on fear or based on anger or whatever. I, I feel like that's potentially less effective than motivating people through hope and good because that's what our human nature is in at sort of at our core. It's utopian. I understand that. It makes me sound a little wishy-washy, but it's um, born out in evidence that I've seen with my own eyes. And it's always a bit of a slushy, murky mess, but the sort of social sciences seem to, and the neuroscience seems to be pointing in that direction as well, as far as creating narratives of hope. Um, it's just, it's hard to do, and it takes a lot of resources. Conscious of the time, but if I could ask one maybe overly straightforward question in a way. Are you happy with the debate that Unequal Scenes has provoked? I mean, if we stick to South Africa, because it's the context you are obviously closest to, um, are you happy with the, the kind of exchanges that have happened as a result of it? Or have they taken directions that you, you didn't necessarily expect or like? Well, I'll answer that with an anecdote. Just after taking the first photo in April 2016, I got into an Uber, I think in May or June 2016, and the Uber driver started talking to me. He didn't know who I was, obviously, and he brought up the images. He literally like brought them up in conversation just out of the blue. He said, you know, there's these amazing images that are coming out. It's made me sort of think about how unequal the city is. What do you think about it? And I realized this, again, it's, I struggle because I don't want to make it sound like I'm self-promoting, but the idea that there were photos that allowed people like over dinner tables and in the halls of the South African government and among city planners and policymakers and Uber drivers that made them reanalyze and reassess the kind of society that they were living in. And when you assess the kind of society that looks that unequal, inevitably, there's going to be a will to change it for the better. Inevitably, because that's human nature. Again, like I said, I believe humans are good. So getting people to assess leads to positive outcomes. And that's definitely been the case in South Africa. There's been a variety of policies that were already in place way before my photos came along that have been energized and that have used my images to communicate to the public in ways that wouldn't have been possible before those images were taken. 
a variety of examples that I don't want to list right now, but from city planners at the province and local level up to the national level, people have used the images for a variety of positive means. Okay. That being said, has there actually been change on the ground in South Africa? I'd argue yes. I'd argue yes. Zuma, as a politician who was widely considered to be corrupt and constraining growth in the country through a variety of poor policy decisions, um, a lot of people, no matter their color in South Africa, kind of consider that a turning point, right? After um, Mandela and Mbeki. So the change in leadership to Ramaphosa, the refocus as far as, and I'm not saying my photos are the only reason for this, but the refocus on inequality issues that started to bubble up around 2016. And by that, I mean, roads must fall, fees must fall, uh, student movements, gender-based violence movements, a whole bunch of civil sort of unrest as far as what the country looked like 25 years after the end of apartheid. It was still so divided. And my photos showed that very well. Has definitely energized the country into looking for new solutions. Now, if Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, doesn't get that right, there's going to be issues. Because the people, white, black, colored, are fed up in South Africa. People are not willing to spend another 25 years waiting for these informal township areas to disappear on their own. And I don't know what that looks like because I'm not a politician and I'm not an economist. And it's difficult and it's going to involve massive amounts of negotiations and interpretations and economic interventions, etc. However, do I feel like the results of my photos, which is going back to your question, have led to positive outcomes? Yes, definitely. And so every night I go to bed and I sleep well, as far as the context of how I went about taking the photos and how I still talk about them, because I feel like it's been a force for good in the world. I feel like it's inspired other people to do similar projects. I get emails all the time from people who are either studying at a master's level or a PhD level or educators and politicians who are using the images to promote some sort of policy curriculum or presentation to many more people. So it's had this network effect that, yeah, undeniably is a positive thing. If, we're, if we all agree that the world we want to see is fairer, healthier, and more inclusive, then the images are a way to promote that. And uh, I'm very confident saying that. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.